Rabbi Ami Hirsch of the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue in New York, and you're listening to In These Times. Eric Fingerhut oversees the Jewish Federations of North America, a continental network of Jewish communities with global reach that raises $3 billion in funds every year to address our most pressing issues. A former U.S. congressman from Ohio and a leader in education, Eric bears the responsibility of supporting the Jewish people while working with partners both within the Jewish community and from without, who very often don't see eye to eye. Eric, welcome to In These Times. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Rabbi. It's great to be with you. I'm very excited to talk to you. You have one of those key central positions in the Jewish community. But before I uh, get into the actual work and the issues that are dominating in the Jewish community now, I wonder if you could just give us a bit about uh, your own background. You served in Congress. You were uh, in the political, in the general political realm, and eventually you made a transition into the Jewish community. So why don't you tell us what you did and why you made that transition? Well, you know, the short version is that the one thing I did think I knew I wanted to be when I grew up was involved in government. I was always inspired by the issues and the people around me. Frankly, a large part of the Jewish community. I grew up in Cleveland and there were a number of of leaders who were involved both in the Jewish community and in government. And it just always inspired me. I actually got my start after law school. I came back to Cleveland and I managed the campaign of a young African-American state senator who was running for mayor of Cleveland in 1989. I ended up as his chief of staff and then was elected to the state senate and then to Congress, served there briefly, lost in 94, went back, served eight more years in the state senate, was very involved in higher education. Along the way, I was president of my synagogue and, you know, was involved on the board of the federation, on the board of the local Hillel, but Never really thought of it as a career. One day I got a call from Hillel from a search committee. And this is my one of my favorite professional stories is they said the search committee had said that what they really need as the next leader of Hillel, we need somebody who may, maybe really understood universities uh, because Hillel's on campus. Somebody else said, well, maybe we need somebody really who could know us and raise money. Maybe like somebody who'd been in Congress. The third one was somebody who'd been involved in the Jewish community, like knew their, you know, the president of their synagogue or something. So they did a search. I was literally the only person in the entire country that fit the job description. So I had the great uh, honor of being offered the leadership, the being presidency of Hillel. It, it just was an exciting, and I felt a meaningful chance for me to merge my Jewish communal sense and responsibility with my experience in government and politics. And I did that for six years and then had the privilege of being asked to lead the Jewish Federations of North America. So here I am. You know, uh, as you were talking about the job description for uh, Hillel, I was Reminiscing about my own application here, I was nominated to uh, submit my resume uh, to the Stephen Wise Free Synagogue. I was selected, and afterwards, they gave me a full report on what they were looking for, the qualities they were looking for, and they wanted everything in its opposite. They wanted somebody who was good with children. They wanted somebody who would not spend a lot of time with children but could (laughs) preach well. They wanted somebody who could sit down and play guitar. They wanted somebody who wouldn't play guitar. Uh, They wanted a scholar. No, they wanted a people person. And so it was everything in its opposite. And And so you're fulfilling it all. (laughs) I remember (laughs) my first sermon. I I, I get up and I I tell people, you know, this is what you wanted. I don't even think Moses could have gotten this job. (laughs) You were the only person in the world who who really was suited for the job. And my job, I was a compromise because nobody in the world (laughs) could have fulfilled that job. 
just a moment on your Jewish background. So you said you never intended to... I didn't. I grew up in Cleveland. It's just a wonderful Jewish community. My grandfather, who I never knew, was an Orthodox rabbi. My mother was a twin, was the youngest of 12. And we had the full gamut in our family, you know, from Orthodox to the most assimilated. And I have two sisters. One is part of a Chabad community in California. That's my older sister. My younger sister is president of a reform congregation in Wilmette, Illinois. And I was active in conservative synagogues and was president of a conservative synagogue. And I was so fortunate, Rabbi. I grew up in a community that provided every opportunity to learn, to go to Israel, to to connect with youth groups. And I just had some of the best teachers and upbringing and everything about it for me excited me. And it's always been a huge part of who I am and my identity. And so the chance that I have now to do this job, to work with all the elements of the Jewish community and help us fulfill our responsibilities in the world today is something that I I feel really fortunate about. Well, on behalf of the Jewish community, I'm expressing our gratitude to you. And it's really amazing how many of our Jewish organizations actually find the best people from the Jewish community to lead the most important organizations. You just had a GA, a general assembly. Was that your first assembly after COVID? How many people uh, showed up and was it exciting? Were people enthusiastic about being there? It was our first since COVID and it was exciting. We actually did something unusual. We did it by invitation. We had the leaders of every Jewish community, every federation, the lay and professional. And we had the leaders, the lay and professional leaders of all the major Jewish organizations. And we said, this is a moment in our communal history when we really should take a look at what's on our collective agenda and how are we doing on that agenda? And frankly, what's likely to come? What can we predict about the coming year? We know we can't predict everything. I mean, a year ago, we didn't know there was going to be a war in Ukraine, but there's some things we know and that we can organize around. And we really wanted to make it a real working meeting, a real meeting where we rolled up our sleeves and took stock and planned together. And so I think it was a huge success for that reason. And there was the energy of being together. What is on the agenda for the uh, Jewish community and what do you anticipate coming down the pike? The first is communal security. One of the, the real benefits of having organizations like Jewish federations, people call us legacy organizations. I'm not sure I know exactly what that word means in this context, but I think they mean we've been around for a while and we're going to be around for a while. We have permanent infrastructure, right? We have permanent professionals. We have lay leaders who have been committed. It enables us to stay with an issue over time, right? Not just respond to an emergency and then go away or respond to an emergency and then go on to the next emergency. So security, of course, has been on our agenda really since 9-11 when, you know, the leaders of our federation system understood that the people who brought down the Twin Towers, we could easily be the targets of that, started something called the Secure Community Network, which was to help provide us with communal expertise on that, which has since grown and plays an important role now in our communities. And then many individual federations building local community security programs led by a a professional who would then work with every synagogue, every JCC. And then, of course, the attack in Pittsburgh at the Tree of Life accelerated this. I became the leader of the Jewish federations in September of 2019. It was just before the first anniversary of the Tree of Life attack. At that point, we probably had, I don't know, 25, 30 communities that had professional security initiatives, we just determined that we had to do it everywhere. You know, as we saw in Colleyville or in Poway, these things can happen anywhere. It's almost random in that sense. So we're in the middle of a campaign we call Live Secure, uh, which is to build out these professional security programs in every community. 
uh, providing an umbrella to all the Jewish institutions. We've uh, announced at the GA, you know, we've increased the number of security programs now by 42% in just the last year. You know, no parent is going to drop their kid off at a camp, but the JCC said day camp, the JCC are out in the woods, or they're not going to want to go to the synagogues if they think that they're at risk. And so we really see this as the cornerstone of enabling the continued flourishing of our Jewish community. So security was number one, we reported on our progress. We committed ourselves to continue this important effort. Second, of course, the Ukraine response was really a profound moment for us in a couple of ways. One, Rabbi, is there have been wars in Europe before, fighting wars, and they haven't gone well for the Jewish people. And I think that the both the sense of communal responsibility to make sure that every Jew that wanted to leave could leave, that everyone who needed humanitarian aid could receive it, plus the communal responsibility to other refugees, not just our own, was profound. It was deeply moving when people saw these images and wanted to respond. Look, one of the things about federations everybody knows is our annual campaigns, right? So, oh my God, it's that time again, you're calling again. Why are you calling again? It's the annual campaign. And the reason is that we build the infrastructures that our community needs and we maintain them year after year. You know, I always say, you don't build a fire department in your community when the house is on fire, right? Your community builds a fire department, maintains the equipment, modernizes the equipment, trains the firemen to be ready for when the house is on fire. That's what we do in the Jewish community. You know, we already had more new Olim to Israel this year than any time since the height of the Soviet exodus. And so we had to prepare ourselves for the coming year. So that was number two. And then another agenda item that's been on our community's mind most notably since the murder of George Floyd, is building a welcoming and inclusive community of which we know we have work to do. And we've built a very strong effort across our federations and Jewish community to make sure that we're welcoming and inclusive and recognizing the, the changing demographics and racial balance and makeup of our Jewish community. And then finally, look, we met the week of Kanye, Rabbi. We met in a time of the University of California, Berkeley you know, Law School. The subject of anti-Semitism, what our communal response is and needs to be, was very much on the minds of everyone who gathered at the GA. Eric, I want to press you a little bit on uh, communal security. Has that issue intensified? Are you more worried about that now than, say, you were five or 10 years ago, just on the physical threat of an attack on Jewish institutions. And then secondarily, I also want to press you on the issue of anti-Semitism and its impact on your work and on the Jewish community, but just specifically about the threats to Jewish institutions. Are, have you seen an uptick on that and are you more concerned about it now than you were, say, five years ago? Yes and yes. I wish the answer wasn't so, but it is. And it's documented. I'm not the world's expert on the causes. I think I've become pretty knowledgeable about the responses that are needed, but certainly we know there are organized efforts on social media aimed at radicalizing people. And then what tends to happen is every time one of these incidents happens, they say it was a lone wolf. Well, there's efforts to trigger people who are inclined to take these kinds of actions. And then of course, you couple that with the access to weapons and the other issues of society. So yeah, I think this is a very worrisome time, and it's why we're focused so heavily on it. I do think that the rise in anti-Semitic incidents contributes to the risk of violence, and we're spending a lot of money as a community on communal security. I used to be in government, as we discussed at the beginning of this podcast, and of course, it's the first responsibility belongs to government to make sure that all Americans are safe in their places of worship and in their places of communal gathering. And we do work very closely with law enforcement 
Uh, and also, uh, we helped convince Congress to create the Nonprofit Security Grant Program. So government is our partner in this for sure, but we do know that we are unique risk and we have to build up to it. On the subject of anti-Semitism, maybe I'll say two things. The first is that we've always been in the business of preventing, inoculating against, and then ultimately opposing anti-Semitism. We've typically done it at the local level. We've done it through what we generally call community relations. You know, one of the core functions of the local federation and its leadership was to make sure that we had relationships with other faith groups and with other ethnic groups and racial groups and civic groups like business associations and labor unions. And of course, government relations, you know, was also a critical part because we knew that the success, the flourishing of Jews in North America, which is beyond any other diaspora you know, in history, uh, but, you know, it's an extraordinary time of freedom and success in North America. That's because we live in a civil society that has welcomed us and protected minorities. And I mean, there've been times of anti-Semitism, just as there's been times of anti-immigrant behavior and other such things in American history that we're experiencing now. We are having to increase those engagements around education, not just college campuses, but also in primary and secondary education. It's really really growing. You've probably read articles about the need to intensify our efforts in the business sector, particularly with this rating services, you know, ESG. One of the things we accomplished at the GA, the General Assembly, was an agreement with Morningstar. So we've had to intensify our engagement there. Plus the social media impact, which is the first place that most of our young adults and our children are getting their information and the people who have these vast followings. And of course, we're making some progress. I mean, there are good good efforts supported by many of our federations, including really yours in New York, the UJ Federation of New York is really leading in this area of experimenting and trying how to get influencers who see this danger and are using their broad bases of followers to communicate the right message of civility and tolerance. But social media is a, it, it's an influence in everything we do. And I dare say that we're reacting to it all the time. I mean, look how fast Henry goes viral or Dave Chappelle, Saturday Night Goes Viral, or any of these other things, it's very difficult to deal with that aspect. I noticed that when you listed the things you talked about at the GA, you didn't mention uh, Israel, which doesn't mean it wasn't on the agenda, but was it prominent on the agenda that the federations send over a significant percentage of everything raised to Israel. Is Israel as prominent and as central now as it used to be for the agenda of the federations? It's a good and it's a fair question. One of the things that I wanted to do, we wanted to do with this General Assembly, was to be really straight about what are the most important things we need to be working on right now. You know, look, Israel is a robust country with a thriving economy, one of the most successful among the Western economies over these last few years. You know, and the good news is that while, of course, we're always going to help Jews in need anywhere in the world, there isn't the same sense of existential crisis that involves just dollars, right? Our commitment to Israel, the global Jewry, is firm and unshakable, and it's a cornerstone of our work. But this year, the priority was, frankly, outside of Israel, right? It was Ukraine and Russia. I didn't mention Ethiopia. We helped support the government decision to allow 3,000 more Ethiopians in. And then we helped raise the funds to bring those 3,000 to Israel. So we, we work closely with the government of Israel, but, but just the pure philanthropic side of it is not at the top of the agenda this very moment. We did provide important support after Operation Guardians of the Walls to victims of terror, mostly 
so Israel was very much a more, I would say more of a partner in our discussions about how to address the challenges that we've been discussing. Israel's been taking a lead, the Jewish agency has been taking a lead on security in other countries of the world. They don't need to do North America because we're here. But the terrible attack at a synagogue on Yom Kippur in Halle, Germany in 2019, which occurred a week or so after I began this role. And a week after that, I was in the synagogue in Halle, Germany with Federation leaders and with the Secretary of State of the United States, Mike Pompeo, with Isaac Herzog, who's now the president of Israel, but then was the head of the Jewish agency and the German foreign minister. Those people were saved because of funds that we provided to the Jewish agency. They then identified that synagogue at risk and they provided that security. So Israel's a partner, but not all the work we do together is in Israel. A lot of it is global. Let me ask you, because uh, I do know that Federated World on its own and through uh, the connections with the Jewish agency are at the heart of the Israel diaspora relationship, which is central to our American Jewish community's sense of self and our future. Generally, how are we doing in terms of the relationship? Is it better than it was, worse than it was? Look, overall, I think it's very strong. The truth is that our, you know, our communities are in some ways closer together than ever before. First of all, we have families that cross the ocean. We have businesses, business partners, business dealings that cross the ocean. I also feel that we have challenges. Let's just get it out of the way. What we're trying to say to our friends in Israel is we're, of course, looking forward to working with this government. We've worked with every government of Israel for 74 years. We've worked with Prime Minister Netanyahu for 30 years as finance minister and as prime minister. We'll support things we can support. We'll post things we can post. But it is really important for them to know that in America's very divided political environment that every bit of support from American society is important. Some of the statements that are made seem to contradict values that are deeply held here of inclusion and, and equality. But the last thing I want to say on this subject, we're two different cultures. We speak two different languages. And Israeli culture is dynamic and it's changing. The holidays, the way people observe Judaism, and, you know, a little bit, I have to say, I think we're a little frozen in time here in America. We're not up to speed on Israeli society the way the way we need to be. We're going to have our, our next year in April in Israel, and it's to celebrate together the 75th, remarkable 75th anniversary of the independence of the state of Israel. And one of the reasons we're doing that is it's over Yom HaZikaron and Yom, and Yom HaTzma'ut, which, again, Rabbi, you know well, but most Americans don't realize how the Yoms are, you know, are celebrated in Israel, the depths of feeling and emotion. And so our goal is going to be to actually integrate our leadership from North America in Israeli society at Yom Zikaron. Go be with a family, spend time in a community, a family that lost a soldier in one of Israel's wars. Be in the community when they commemorate that. And then be in Israel that moment when the transition occurs from Yom Zikaron to Yom Ma'ut. Experience that. We need to experience Israeli society and culture more. That's why we care so deeply about all the immersive experiences, sending our kids to Israel, because you really need to experience the vibrant, and dynamic culture, not be frozen in a mindset of 67, 73, whatever, you know, whenever it is here. Mm. You know the Democratic Party well. When you served in Congress, you were active in promoting the Israel-American bilateral relationship. Uh, are you worried about some of the long-term trends in the Democratic Party that elements of it seem to be distancing or turning away from Israel? I always am careful about this because I don't want to sound like an old fogey. I'm worried about our political culture in general. 
I am worried about our political debate and our political culture, but I'm worried about it, you know, frankly, on both sides. Yes, indeed, on the left, the far left, the Democratic Party, the squad, et cetera, you have these threats that you've described. You know, I want to say that I understand the controversies that surrounded APAC's decision to become involved in some of those Democratic primaries. But I got to tell you, if they hadn't done what they did, the squad would be twice as big. And when you go from five to 10 to 15 to 20, it starts to become a very material threat. So I'm grateful for their efforts in the Democratic primaries. Obviously, the extreme you know, right of the Republican Party isn't good for the Jewish community in America either. The critical nature is that the center left to the center right hold. That's where we are in the federation system. I like to say we're between the 20 yard lines. We have to keep building and strengthening that, that center. You know, what's worrisome is that people think that everybody has to be on their side of the 50 yard line. When I was in the Congress and state legislature uh, as a Democrat, you know, I served a total of 10 years in the Ohio Senate and then two years in the U.S. House. It was just taken for granted that if you wanted to be the governing coalition, you had people who had difference of opinions on big issues, abortion, guns. I mean, we had people in our coalition of our majority that you know, held opposing views. That was a given. In fact, if you didn't want to do that, you were written off as someone who actually wasn't serious about governing. I hope that we can play a positive influence constantly. When we lobby, everything's bipartisan. We bring together people constantly from both sides. You know, APEC does that, of course, on the U.S.-Israel issues, but we do it on all this other range of issues that Jewish federations are involved in. It's noticeable to me. I think the trigger for me was the election of President Trump that Something changed in the Jewish community, and we became almost as polarized as American society in general. And so it's very hard now to speak about anything or to reach common ground on many things in the Jewish community because we, along with the rest of American society, seem to be pulled into more definitive kind of tribal camps. Are you finding that to be the case in the federation system itself, is it more challenging to reach consensus on the professional and lay level at the federation world? I was going to say yes until you added that last clause. So yes, we are feeling it. Yes, we see it. We see some amount of decline in civility and willingness to work across. We always had federation leaders who were Republicans and always had federation leaders who Democrats. So we do feel it. You know, uh, federations here from people with very aggressive criticisms of if we did this, or we did that. But when you say this, hindering our ability to, to drive consensus on important issues, then I'm less willing to jump and say yes. Maybe it makes it a little harder, but we've been quite successful in helping people identify what the most critical issues are facing the Jewish community and why we need to work together on those issues. Some people think there are other things that should be on that agenda, right? And maybe one of the reasons that if there's a benefit of having somebody who used to be in politics in this job I don't know if there is, but if there is, let me suggest that it might be that I know when somebody's being political and when they're not, right? So sometimes things that are being presented as if they're not political, they're just really, you know, for the good of society and everybody should agree on, it really does have a political element to it. You mentioned you've been concerned more since the election of President Trump. Surely that, there's no question that roiled up our community in ways we'd never seen the likes of before. And, and he seems to enjoy it and keeps egging it on with his, you know, comments about, you know, Jews and Democrats and all that. But think about what we did during his administration. During the COVID period, uh, we worked with the Trump administration and with the Congress on what I actually think is one of the most historic public policy decisions of the last few decades, 
after 9-11, after the real estate crash, after various other major historic moments, there was always a government bailout package, you know, big government package that came in to help the auto, save the auto industry, save the real estate industry, save the travel industry, whatever, from collapse. And they were needed. But they never before had included the nonprofit sector, and especially the faith-based sector. When COVID happened, we knew there'd be a bailout package. It was obvious it was going to be. But we led the coalition that helped organize other faith groups and other nonprofits to say to the president of Congress that this is affecting every aspect of society. And the social service world, which is not, you know, look, we're not a social democracy, right? Government doesn't provide all the social services in America. It's a partnership between government and the nonprofit sector. This entire infrastructure of social services was at risk and the faith-based social service sector. And so that's how it became the case that this famous now PPP program, the you know, Paycheck Protection Program, included nonprofits. And then we worked to make sure that the rules included faith-based organizations, including synagogues, JCCs, et cetera. And then we worked to help make sure our community knew that and knew how to take advantage of it. All of that happened under a Trump administration, under a Congress that was divided and contentious. So I think we showed that we could really work together and succeed on big things, notwithstanding that you're absolutely right that the political environment is tenser and more contentious, even in our own community, than it's been in a long time. Yeah, and I see that even locally in synagogues uh, also. There's less tolerance to hear views that are inconsistent with your own views. You know, there used to be, used to give some string, some leeway, some rope, you know, as long as you allowed for opportunities for uh, dialogue. Now people seem less patient to hear anything that contradicts what their political views are. And we wanted people to be on both sides. I mean, that was part of the communal strategy was to have people who are influential on both parties and in both sides. And you're not being influential if you're not reflective, at least of some of the, you know, the mainstream views of that. Sure. And it goes without saying, you know, the Jewish tradition encourages that our tradition is based upon, let's get into the argument so we can explore how to get closer to truth. You know, that's what the whole system is built on. Of course. One of the things, maybe the thing that I found the most gratifying as a member of the state legislature in Ohio and then briefly as a member of Congress, was working with people from completely different backgrounds than me and coming to understand how they held the views they held. Don't judge people till you've walked in their shoes, right? Most people think that's some cliche that was probably written by Mark Twain or something, but you know, but it's pure chaos, right? So if you dig deep enough, you can find a Jewish source for almost anything. Yeah, especially Mark Twain, right? <laughs> I love that part. And I think that's a Jewish thing, right? To really want to understand. And I do need to say, look, you asked about the vision of Jewish community politically and, and you're right. But, you know, we also, obviously, since we're the Jewish federations, we pay close attention to the demographic shifts in our communities. In addition to the famous Pew study, which everyone knows about, we conduct usually out of every 10 years, in-depth community surveys in each community. In the last couple of years, We've conducted surveys that cover roughly 50% of the Jewish community in North America. It largely confirms what Pew reported on a global basis, and that is that we are becoming a more polarized community religiously, politically, ideologically. We have a growing Orthodox population, as you know. We have a growing non-affiliated population, and we have a shrinking center. That's the reality. And so why would that surprise us that it's harder to bring together people to discuss common issues? And 
one of the things we did at the GA, I mentioned about inclusiveness, is we had sessions about how do we bridge the secular orthodox divide? This, how do we make sure that we're talking to each other, that we're working together on common grounds? How do we make sure that orthodox Jews understand what are the values driving non-orthodox Jews and vice versa? Because we don't all, and of course, I'm sure you find yourself in your role, especially in the city you're in, in the middle of those very, very same conversations. Mm. You mentioned a couple of times you're engaged in the flourishing of Jewish life in the United States. I think, if I'm right, in total, the federation system raises about $3 billion a year, and working with the government raises many billions more for social service efforts, and that's then invested back in American Jewish life. Is Jewish life flourishing in North America? I think it is, but that doesn't mean we can't do better. I'm a glass half full you know, person on this. When I was at Hillel and people would try to explain to me, oh, well, you're never going to get this group. And there's 10% believe it are this. And 40%, I said, you know what? There's only two groups of students, that those we've engaged and those we haven't engaged yet. So that's how I feel about Jewish life at large. We're a diverse people, which means no one initiative is going to engage everybody. There's no silver bullet. We need lots and lots of creativity. And we're getting that kind of creativity in Jewish life today, whether it's you know camps, day schools, youth groups, trips to Israel. I mean, all of this infrastructure of Jewish communal life is really amazing. But I do want to remind people, and this is why we're there year after year. And it's why we ask for support year after year. And why I'm not embarrassed to ask for support year after year, because you're a caring Jew, Rabbi, you're going to give to causes that you believe in. I truly believe you will. But you can't know every organization and every need in the community. And so while you should give to the things you have personal knowledge of or that you are passionate about, you should also give communally and uh, to make sure that we're supporting this entire enterprise. I don't know if it's the pendulum has swung or just the news of the world has brought us back to this, but people understand today, you can't do this by yourself. You can't maintain a community by yourself. Of course, everything about Judaism is built around community, right? We don't live on mountaintops. We pray as a community. We celebrate as a community. We mourn as a community. We care for each other as a community. We're the communal enterprise. You know, and for me personally, that's bringing this conversation to full circle. So it brings me back to withdraw my political careers, right? It's believing in the power of community to care for people. And then that ultimately led me to be a Jewish professional because I think we're the epitome of a demonstration of why communal Life is the essence of also a godly life and a holy life and a faithful life. I want to thank you, Eric, very much for spending the time with us. And on behalf of the Jewish community, we're grateful for all that you do and all that you will do. I do want to uh, give a shout out for your own podcast that you'll be launching. Do you have a name for it yet? The Glue. It's the glue that holds us together as a community. So for all of our listeners, keep your ears out for the glue. It's launching soon, and I'm sure it'll be uh, fascinating. Thank you very much, Eric. Thank you, Rabbi. Eric mentioned that among the Jewish community's highest priorities are the huge additional burdens of communal security and the dramatic increase in anti-Semitism. I think we often take for granted one of the central principles that Eric raised, that is, Jewish flourishing in America is the consequence of what Eric termed American civil society. We have thrived in this country, not because we are more capable, more intelligent, more talented than other Jewish communities of the past or the present. It is not that we are so different. It is that America is different. America is an experiment unprecedented in human affairs, founded on an idea, freedom, and grounded in institutions that limit the power of government to restrict freedom, 
America proclaimed that all human beings are equally entitled to liberty. Liberty, not blood, race, religion, ethnicity, creed, social status, land, or inheritance. Liberty defines America. It is a Jewish idea. We wrote the first chapter of the right of peoples to be free, a right bestowed not by pharaohs, kings, or rulers, but by God. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, How long will you refuse to humble yourself before me, Pharaoh? Let my people go. Most American Jews live here now because someone in our family in the past four or five generations fled persecution. They were drawn to this country like bees to a flower because they knew deep down at the core of their being that America is different. We are blessed to live in America. Our Jewish ancestors could not even dream of such a place. From the beginning, America offered a bargain to the Jews. Fulfill the obligations of citizenship and receive the government's blessing and support. As the first president, George Washington, wrote in a famous letter to the synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island, happily the government of the United States, which gives to bigotry no sanction, to persecution no assistance, requires only that they who live under its protection should demean themselves as good citizens in giving it on all occasions their effectual support. By and large, America has lived up to its promise to the Jews, and the Jews have lived up to our promise to America. As much as we have received, we have also made enormous contributions to America. It has not been perfect. There were periods of pervasive anti-Semitism, but never like European anti-Semitism. We do not live here with daily reminders of wholesale Jewish destruction or government discrimination, as do our counterparts in every significant Western European Jewish community. It is the spirit of liberty, tolerance, the promotion of human dignity and decency, the principle of equal moral worth of every individual, the ability to listen to those with whom we disagree, and the art of compromise. These have come under increased pressure in recent years, and along with it, inevitably, as night follows day, increased animosity to Jews. In this troubling era of dramatically increasing anti-Semitism, did anyone think that an atmosphere of intolerance would bypass Jews? That we can mark the doorposts of our houses and have the angel of death pass over us? Did anyone think that threats and attacks against churches and mosques, that hatred of racial, religious, and ethnic minorities, that expressions of intolerance of sexual and gender diversity would not eventually lead to increased expressions and acts of hatred against Jews? Jews have felt so secure in America that many of us, in particular the younger generations, do not consider ourselves a minority group at all. We assume that anti-Semitism is a thing of the past. There is no past when it comes to anti-Semitism. There is only eternal vigilance. It is not primarily a question of whether any public figure is anti-Semitic. Rather, the question is, are we, wittingly or not, creating, permitting, or encouraging an atmosphere of intolerance, giving aid and comfort to Jew-haters? And thus, we need to work hard to decrease polarization in American society, to reach out to the other side, and to resolve economic, social, cultural, and political disputes around the center, the 50-yard line, what Eric termed the center-right and the center-left. We need to compromise when we can and agree to disagree when we can't in order to prevent the extremes from gaining more power and influence and eventually undermining all that we hold dear about this country. First, because we love America. We love what she stands for. In many ways, she is still the last best hope of Earth. And second, as Eric emphasized, there is a direct connection between the country's well-being and the well-being of the country's Jews. In the mid-20th century, 
Republican presidential candidate Wendell Wilkie said, The cloak that binds America together is woven of strong yet delicate fabric. It serves to shelter alike the rich and the poor, the native and foreign-born, Jew and Gentile, black and white. Let no one tear it asunder, for we do not know where we shall find its likes again. The American fabric is strong yet delicate. Let no one tear it asunder. Nothing is permanent in human affairs. Everything changes. Everything human is fragile. We can never take for granted the American promise. We can never simply assume that the progress that has already been made will not be reversed under sustained attack. We need to be vigilant and proactive every day. Until next time, this is In These Times. <laughs>